What's so amazing about art is that it's one of the few things that you can do where you can hold space for knowing what you're doing and be so confident, but at the same time don't know what you're doing. And there's no other thing that is like that. Like you can't not know what you're doing with food, it's going to taste bad. And you can't not know what you're doing being a doctor in surgery. But in art, you can be that and have the confidence in, in being that and some amazing stuff can come out of it. That's Luke Ramsey, and this is The Stories That Brought You Here, a podcast dedicated to the stories of the people living in and around the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and it's my pleasure to get to sit down in conversation with people to hear about the pivotal and life-changing stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Luke moved to Vancouver Island from England when he was nine. At that young age, he had a deep interest in art and luckily found some encouragement from teachers along the way. As the years went on, Luke would be influenced and be inspired by becoming involved in Victoria's punk scene, hitchhiking across Canada, international travel, collaborating with other artists, and would go on to co-found the Islands Fold residency with his wife Ange. Through his career, Luke created hyper-detailed ink drawings, painted large outdoor murals, and participated in various other art projects. In 2016, he would become the city of Victoria's first artist in residence. In this extremely wide-ranging interview, Luke will reflect on these experiences. As well, we will also talk about the power of humor, hustling, developing trust, self-confidence, April Fool's Day pranks, and so much more. This interview was so enjoyable for me to do because Luke and I have been good friends for well over a decade now, and having followed Luke's career and having an understanding about the work that he's done along the way, it was really interesting to get to sit across from him and ask him questions about his process and his history and his experience and really dig deep into subjects in a way that you're able to with somebody you're really close with. So I really hope you enjoy this interview because it's a great one. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. If you wind up liking what you're hearing from this interview and you want to listen to more, there's a pretty big back catalog of interviews I've done along the way. So feel free to check that out. But that's then and this is now. And so first a little bit of music and then my interview with Luke Ramsey. So Luke, thank you for being here. We're doing it. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. My pleasure. I always love to give context for the listeners as to what's going on. So right now it is the end of March. It's uh, seven o'clock at night on a beautiful Tuesday evening. How's your day been so far? It's been wonderful. Went for a nice hike with a friend, hang out with the dogs on the beach and had a lovely dinner that my wife Ange cooked. So yeah, it was great. Okay. Dogs on the beach. Yeah. I know that uh, you have a uh, quite a special dog. We do, yeah. We have a fur baby. His name is Reggie, and he is a huge part of our life. We're very obsessed with him, and we're currently dog-sitting for Maple, who is Ange's sister's family's dog. Any difference between taking care of one dog versus two lately? I like it. I like seeing the companionship, and it's really cute at night when they curl up in their beds and they're by our side, and I love it. 
Um, but it also comes with another level of responsibility. And I could see having two dogs being a bit bit of a workload. But Maple's a wonderful dog. She's a sweetheart. So yeah, it's been fun. Nice. All right. Well, let's uh, get into the first traditional question of this podcast. And that is, what brought you to the Salish Sea? I grew up in England and our family moved to Victoria when I was about nine years old. And so I consider Victoria my hometown. That's where I went to high school and grew up for most of my childhood from like nine until 20. And then traveled a bunch with Ange uh, for many years. And then we ended up coming back to Victoria and then moved to Pender Island. Okay. Which is where we are now. You've uh, done me the favor of coming to my home here on Pender Island doing this interview. But uh, okay, well, so you came to the Salish Sea by way of an airplane from England. Uh, You spent your first nine years there. What do you remember of those experiences that you had there? I have a fond memory of my childhood. We grew up in an area called the Cotswolds. So really beautiful area, Um, farmland, like beautiful stone homes. And it was great. I spent a lot of time outdoors you know, building forts in the forest and just being a kid. And moving to Canada was a big change, but not in a drastic way for a nine-year-old to adapt to. But yeah, I have fond memories of England. I think that for any kid, just switching schools, like in a in a different neighborhood is a little bit of a trying thing at the age of nine. But you crossed over an ocean and you came to a whole other country. What do you remember from that experience exactly of being that age and going through that particular experience? Well, in England, kids wear uniforms. And so I grew up wearing a uniform, then came to Canada, wasn't wearing a uniform for a couple of years in public school, then went to private school. So went back to wearing a uniform. And then in high school, went back to public school to not wearing a uniform again. So that was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But in terms of uh, making new friends, and did you have a, a wacky accent when you, uh, you were nine or no? Yeah, I had a very thick, strong English accent for. It kind of fizzled out after about six months of being in Canada. Didn't take long. All right. And um, yeah, when you're at that age, what interests did you have uh, in terms of uh, hobbies outside of school? And and I guess also on top of that, what, what particular subjects in school were you into? Well, I've always liked art. And I was really into drama. And yeah, art, drama, um, that's pretty much it. Everything else was just doing it to just get through the system, I guess. So in elementary school, were you able to uh, find outlets for art and drama easily enough? Yeah. Yeah. I still have like some drawings, say, from being that young. And I have a strong memory of a teacher in grade five that was really encouraging of my art practice. Her name was Miss Holmes. And she framed up this like poster that I made for the, for the library. She like laminated it. And so that was a pretty significant moment of having my work elevated in some capacity and having a teacher believe in me. And then I had, yeah, I had really good art teachers um, ever since then. So, yeah, because it was put up on a wall in like a, like a highly visible area. So, you know, maybe it turned, turned on a switch in me that was like, oh, like, yeah, I could maybe pursue sharing my art outside of my own sketchbook. Yeah, art's always been something that's been a part of my life since a very young age. So how did the how did this uh, this interest in art uh, unfold as the the years went on? So as you got into high school, were you changing your style? Were you influenced by different things? What was happening? 
before I was in high school, I went to a private school, um, St. Michael's University in Victoria, that had a really supportive and good art program. So that that gave me a lot of a lot of inspiration and just yeah, feeling good about art. And then when I went to high school, the teacher there was great, um, Miss Gibbs. She was very she. I mean, she definitely favored the students that were more into art, but fair enough. And uh, she would give us like a credit card to go to the store and get supplies and just in, just encouraged us. So uh, stylistically, I guess high school, I was really into um, politics and punk. So angsty, charged drawings. I made zines, um, that kind of content. Okay. Yeah. And th- there might be people listening who don't know what a zine is. What is a zine? Zine is a, a fanzine. It's uh, like a self-produced publication, usually done quite cost-effectively. Just staple and photocopied content could be poetry, essays, art, collage, poems, whatever. So you started making those in high school, and you said that there you had some leanings towards uh, politics and uh, the punk scene as well, too. Yeah, I was really into going to punk shows every almost every weekend. I was in a punk band, and there would always be tables with punks selling zines. And then I asked f- some friends of mine to be a part of the scene that I put out. I had like comics, and me and my friend went to this SNFU punk gig in Abbotsford, and I got to interview Chi Pig, the singer of SNFU, for this zine and uh the guys from gob so that was kind of cool at the time to be able to interview these punk bands that i really admired so that was kind of my first kind of step into self-publishing and just putting putting out art so well that's kind of cool so like the interviews were just question and answers beside images and your zines yeah totally and did you find people pretty accommodating about doing these interviews oh yeah yeah i mean if you're a older punker and a younger punk kid is like interested in what you're doing and wants you to be a part of their zine they're pretty welcoming and supportive of that i found the punk community was very yeah just a lot of fun i have really fond memories of it well what are some of those memories about it because you know i I just mentioned before that maybe some people listening had never heard of a zine before and i i think a number of people listening have never been involved in a punk scene before and that includes myself as well too uh for some reason i wasn't drawn to that when I was a teenager, but what was it about that culture that drew you in when you were a teenager and what did you like about it? I loved how it really celebrated the DIY ethos, which is like do it yourself. Um, if you could scrounge up enough money to buy a guitar or whatever and start a band and just make some noise, it wasn't too hard to find people that wanted to put on shows or put on shows yourself. And just a very inclusive community, different styles of punk, different types of punkers would go, but everybody got along for the most part. And there was always always shows happening each weekend and they were very accessible. It only cost, you know, two or five bucks to get into a show. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And Victoria has a really thriving history of punk. Like um, No Means No and Dayglow Abortions. Um, th- there's just so many bands that have come out of Victoria. And I grew up in the 90s and it was a really good time for, for hardcore and 
then bands like Hot Hot Heat and Wolf Parade kind of came out of that scene. So yeah, it was an amazing time. Just to go a little further into it about what was amazing about it is that uh, I kind of have the impression that it's just amazing in the sense that there's a community that's part of it, that there's probably good friends that you're being able to uh, develop friendships with. But other than those things, like what else was so amazing about it? The energy, the electricity, what made it so amazing? Well, there's there's energy and electricity about it. And I was a young teenager that liked to party and, you know, get into get into a bit of trouble here and there. And I was into skateboarding and it just seemed like other misfits would always be attracted to the punk show. So it was just a good good way for the the freaks and geeks and misfits to come together and just celebrate life and being young. Yeah. I love I mean I still carry that punk ethos in me today as a 43 year old man and I always feel punk at heart and I still listen to punk music. What does that mean, though, in terms of being punk at heart? How does that get uh, demonstrated and played out in your life these days? Well, for me, it's about embracing the the individual expression and also lending itself to community and the collective experience. So it's a combination of the two that really works for what I'm about. And I just like how punk is about doing things yourself and just finding a way. And if you don't know how to do it, then you ask your friend or you ask a fellow punker, or whoever, to help you find a way to make it happen. And a lot of that inspires collaboration. And there's just an, there's an energy about it. I think some people would maybe be into punk just for the aesthetics or for the style of the sound or, or whatnot. But I feel like punk goes deeper than that. Punk goes deeper than that. And yeah. Because you mentioned numerous times the whole do-it-yourself aspect. Yeah. And when I grew up, there was organizations like Food Not Bombs that I would help out with where you would be finding food resources, finding ways to not waste food and offer food to people in need or homeless people and feed them once a week and things like that, where you're just looking for outlets to be of service to the community in some way, but in a more grassroots approach. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for explaining those things. I, I think that the the whole world of punk obviously goes way deeper. We're just barely scratching the surface here. But I was talking to Laurie Story a few interviews ago, and he was uh, telling me about his involvement in the punk scene for a good portion of his life. And it's neat. It's neat for people who uh, have no idea as to what this is about to get a little bit of insight. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And Laurie's all about house shows, and I have a fond memory of being a part of house shows and it'd be really fun to just see this hardcore band from Boston playing in some kid's parents' living room and the family photos are just like vibrating off off the walls because the the sound is so loud and yeah, I just it's just amazing thinking yeah. back on house shows and even when I go to a house show now it's I have such a such a feeling towards it. Okay, so getting back into high school and maybe the end of high school here, when you reached that stage, what were you thinking about what you wanted to do with your life and what did you eventually wind up doing? As soon as I graduated high school, my friend Dave and I hitchhiked across Canada all the way to Newfoundland. And that was a really wild and fun experience. And then I just had the travel bug. So I just wanted to travel as much as possible. So 
my wife Ange and I have been together for 23 years. When we first started dating, she was 18 and I was 20, and we ended up traveling all over Europe and Morocco and Turkey. And so we got to really know each other pretty well on that trip and fell in love. And, you know, that's how it, how it all began. And, and then we would just work whatever jobs that we could to save money to travel. Then we did a bunch of traveling around Southeast Asia, uh, Thailand and uh, Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia, which was amazing. And then we ended up teaching English in Taiwan for a year. And I went on a really fun road trip from Vancouver down to Mexico with my friend Ryan and ended up driving into Belize and all the way back. And that was pretty memorable. So I just traveled as much as, as I could, as much as I could afford to. Um, so I did that for a long time. Well, let's hit on that hitchhike across Canada trip to start off with here. What about that experience did you learn about yourself along the way there? Trust, just trust in in the journey, trust in the person that's picking you up. There's a beautiful naivety and innocence when when you're young that allows one to take a chance or go into unfamiliar territories. I I find as I get older, it's um because I've seen things go sideways or things not work out a certain way, then maybe there's more apprehension and hesitancy to do certain things. But when looking back as myself as a younger man, that just wasn't an issue. I just go for it. And yeah. So yeah, I learned a lot about just, just trust and fortunately didn't have any, any bad experience experiences with hitchhiking on that trip, but I did have a bad experience hitchhiking like years later. Um, which made me be a little bit more cautious of hitchhiking. Well, the numbers are pretty dramatic in favor of uh, everything working out okay, because to get from Vancouver to Newfoundland, obviously you had to get a whole bunch of rides along the way. Yeah, yeah. So my wife and I, Jennifer and I, we hitchhiked top of New Zealand, down to the bottom, back up to the top again, took over 100 rides, and we only had one sketchy incident happened along the way, which basically was the equivalent of, oh, we're in the car for two minutes and we feel uncomfortable and we asked to get out and we did. And then that was it, right? Yeah. But uh, Your spidey but, senses kicked in. Yeah. But we really realized afterwards, because we actually wrote down every single person that picked us up at the end of our nine-month trip in New Zealand. And it was really fun to go through car by car, person by person. And we're like, wow, there's over 100 rides. And so that that's a big number of rides with everything working out pretty great, even being asked to stay at people's homes for the night or coming over for dinner. So yeah, anyways. I feel we like had a funny um, experience where this guy, uh, this far farmer picked us up and he offered us a place to stay for the night and, uh, and a meal, which is pretty amazing. And it's, it's so funny to mention this because I'm not making this up, but he, he said, you, you guys can stay with us, but don't like no funny business with my with my daughter. And this daughter was like, attractive beautiful woman and it's just that whole thing like the farmer's daughter thing but it was just funny that he like mentioned it we you know we're we're decent guys like we weren't gonna be weird about anything but it's just funny that he mentioned mentioned it <laughs> and uh amazing that a guy would just get a good vibe from us and be like yeah i'll put you up for the night like a stranger you know it's pretty amazing that people have that charity and, and kindness and i hope that continues to happen and that people have faith in in humanity and will take someone in that they don't know. 
but it's a it's a vibe, right? And like you were saying with you and Geneva, when you got in that car, you just got a bad feeling and you have to trust that. Yeah. But so what you're saying about this person offering pretty decent amount of generosity your way, I think that that really says a lot about human nature and that I I really believe that that will continue on because it it is kind of an amazing thing that people would do that. But uh, if you talk to anybody who's done any hitchhiking, you're going to hear those stories from those people. Those stories are not as few and far between as one might think. Yeah. The friend that I hitchhiked with, his mom had a terrible uh, hitchhiking experience in the 70s where um, she was hitchhiking with a friend and this this Vietnam vet with like PTSD just um, like pulled a gun on them and just said, said some crazy stuff. And fortunately, like they weren't physically hurt but yeah that's mentally like gonna stay with you um so yeah it's you know it i can totally understand why people wouldn't want to hitchhike but having had done it so much myself i think it it's a wonderful thing well one more thing about that is that so you the plan was to hitchhike from vancouver to newfoundland that was the objective at the beginning of the trip yeah Okay. And so then you get to the other side and you've lived in this state of uh, trust because it's a very vulnerable thing standing by the side of the road with your thumb out time and time again. It truly is. But the reward is getting picked up by somebody and getting a safe ride to the next place wherever they're going. And then you make your, your way on. Yeah. Well, it's, that, it's, it's more fun to do it with a friend for passing the time, but it's also harder to get a ride. It totally is. Yeah. But but the experience of of getting to the end of that adventure with, you know, everything working out pretty fine, do you think that helped to springboard you into more travel afterwards that came, like you said? Because if things had gone awry at certain points and there, you lost a sense of trust because of some incident that came up, do you think, in retrospect, you would have been as eager to go travel into foreign countries afterwards? It's a good question. I think there's something in me that keeps going because I have been in some super sketchy situations in my years of traveling and it hasn't hasn't stopped me or it didn't stop me in, in those y younger years of traveling. Yeah, I've had some really dicey things and it's just part of the experience and maybe there's angels on my side. I don't know. So I don't think if when bad things happen, no, it hasn't stopped me from wanting to, to travel. Yeah. Okay. So you do all this traveling and then as well too, you said that uh, part of the traveling happened with uh, this new relationship that you entered into. I believe that was 1999 that happened. We were talking about this the other day. Yeah. You and your wife uh, met on New Year's Eve, 1999. Yeah. Y2K. <laughs> big, big night. Yeah. And it's really cool because when, when we were talking about this the other day, I was like, wow, how many relationships can say we met on Y2K? It's funny. I was looking back on Y2K um, recently and just seeing the, the frenzy and fear that was propagated in the media at the time. And I was thinking about how that was just like a little little sprinkling of, of, of something decades ago. I mean, that's always existed, but I was 20 at the time and I didn't care like i wasn't I wasn't worried that the clocks weren't going to turn over and the numbers wouldn't work you know it just wasn't a we kind of like just laughed it off and then at this new year's party we were at a friend of ours like pulled the circuit breaker like right at at midnight which was really funny 
it's make, happening. Yeah, to make it seem like Y2K was <laughs> was kicking off. But it didn't. And actually, like, maybe it, you know what? Maybe it did, and we're just living in an alternative reality. I mean, that's a whole other conversation itself. But I, I feel like life didn't end. Life actually kind of like began in a different form for you on that night, really. It did. Yeah. So Ange and I have been adventuring ever since and uh, through sickness and health, you know, we've, se- we've seen it all. And I think that being that young and traveling and being under these like super vulnerable, sketchy situations and sticking by each other's side through all that really, it just flourished a love um, and companionship that we still have to this day. Yeah, and so what were some of the uh, the pivotal experiences that happened between you two while you were traveling during those years? Well, it was a different era, right? There was a we didn't have the internet in our hands. Like it wasn't have to go to like a internet cafe to figure stuff out. And we had guidebooks that were basically our our Bible that we you know used to to get around and figure stuff out, and we met a lot of cool people and travelers on the same circuits that just were into having fun and adventure. And that was really rewarding, pivotal, just going with the flow, just, just doing things on a shoestring budget and finding a way to stretch out our money so we could see as much as we could see. And yeah, we saw some amazing things. You know, (laughs) it's so awesome being in your, uh, your twenties and yeah. and you got the world by the tail. You're traveling, figuring things out, dreaming up a future. And this future it sounds like the two of you were dreaming up together. What were you guys imagining was gonna happen when you settled down from traveling? Hmm. What did we envision for settling down? Yeah, because when you're traveling and every day is exciting and new and holds mystery and promise. It's wonderful, but but there comes a time where then the conversation happens. It's like, okay, we're going to be moving back to Canada, and then we're going to be doing this, right? Because there there has to be like a little bit of a planning and a framework that goes into what's going to happen when you, you touch down. Yeah, I think we just, we traveled for so long, and then it got to a point where the means of traveling was working jobs that we weren't so passionate about. And realizing that we didn't want to keep doing those jobs. And then the last traveling experience. So we had a travel experience where we went to Taiwan, but we were also there to teach English and make money. But we weren't really that into teaching English. So it was a challenging experience. And then since coming back from that time, I started pursuing art as a as a career or a way to make a living. And then Angie and I just combined both of our interests and then started this artist residency, Islands Fold residency that we did on Pender Island. So that became a new, a new chapter, a new adventure. So we, instead of going other places to meet people, then we would invite people from other places to then come spend time with us on Pender Island. Okay. Well, let's just uh, let people know a little bit more about that briefly, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump on to the next subject. But this one's really fascinating. I know that you've mentioned that you've uh, talked about this uh, numerous times because I think that it's kind of a uh, important phase of your your life. But in terms of what you said about you and Ange combining your interests, what do you mean by that exactly? My interest in, in art and collaborating with artists and Ange's interest in health and nutrition. 
So I did a artist residency in New Hampshire in 2005. And that inspired me to want to start start one up. And so just thought about how Ange loves to <clears throat> work with food and kind of went from there. So we would be offering artists uh, lovely, healthy, home-cooked meals. Okay. And so artists would come for how long? For a week. Or so, a week or two, usually like a week. And at the time you had a uh, a small home that you were living in and was there, there was a cabin on the property? Uh, it wasn't a small home actually. It was quite large. It was, had a giant uh, rec room with green astroturf and we bought a ping pong table and we had foosball in there and and uh, it was amazing. And we were renting it for less than what a apartment would cost in the city. So it was it was great. And how did you attract artists to come stay there? Just through zine culture and having a website and just my interest in connecting with different artists and just starting to create a um a presence in certain art circles with what I was putting out there. Cool. So how long did this go on for? Like uh in terms of months or years and how many artists did you have come through? We did it for five years and we had over 30 artists. And is there anything that you can say that you tangibly took away from that experience in terms of interacting with other artists and having an opportunity to learn from them, uh, whether it be technique or style or just in terms of pursuing a career? Most of the artists that we worked with had a similar kind of aesthetic or, or vibe, with the exception of, of a few. But, uh, it was, yeah, just a great opportunity to learn about someone from a different place. And Pender Island's a beautiful place, but it, at the time, it felt like it didn't have like a hugely diverse arts community or just people in general. I mean, of course, everyone's diverse in their own way, but just, you know, to have this artist from LA just show up and had never been on a place like Pender Island before and get to, hear his like experience and stuff was pretty pretty cool he showed up late at night at the ferry terminal and he thought he was like in a horror movie because he's like what am i doing like i'm just showing up to this small island on the west coast of canada with these this artist i don't even really know that well and just kind of going for it but again it's that that trust thing you know it all it all works out but yeah he was freaked out because we were running a bit late and so he just shows up to like an empty ferry terminal at night um yeah. Yeah. Showing up to the ferry terminal and uh, you ride not being yeah. there can be a, a, a then frightening experience, even yeah. with the are familiar with the place. And then you're, and then this, this house we were renting had a dungeon with a revolving door into like another room. And we we're like showing him all this stuff. Then the night that he shows up, he's probably just thinking, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> so, and then when I say it had a dungeon, it did like it had this paint room that was painted kind of creepy with like gray stone and, and on the front of the door, I said, the dungeon. And I guess the guy that lived there used to make props for kids' TV shows or something, or he made children's books. I don't know what the full story is, but he had all these um, little wooden characters around the property, and it was a very trippy house. Okay. And it had a um, dark room as well. I I was actually just driving by that house today and talking about how uh, a friend has lived there for years. They bought the house, and uh, when you guys were renting it and they were... Uh 
just in the process of moving. So all the uh, the moving going on and uh, that Liz and Alex. Yep. Yeah. And uh, some new owners are going to be taking over that house in yeah. uh, a matter of days. It looks like so. Yeah. Some... It's a it's a cool house and it's in a it's a beautiful spot. And uh, I would assume that the the dungeon's been painted over. I think it has been. I think <laughs> I think Al said uh, they did some work. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you do uh, you do this collaborative project with uh, your wife and bringing over artists, uh, and this goes on for about five years. During this time as well, too, that in terms of working with artists and making your own art, what's what's going on on that side of things? Because it sounds like you made the decision that you wanted to become a full time artist. Yeah, I um, I was working at the gas station, and had this epiphany that I wanted to self-publish like a full color art book and just save up enough money to do that. And so, so I did that and then left my job at the gas station and just started pursuing art more full time. Islands Fold was covering its expenses through the zines and art and prints that we sold online. And we got to actually go to a, do a couple of exhibitions overseas. We did one in Copenhagen and we did a show in LA which was a lot of fun um but at the end of the day it just I wasn't able to pay myself a wage or anything from doing it so then I realized I needed to just start taking on more illustration jobs so I did a lot of illustration for a few years to start pursuing my own way of income through art making and um and it just got to a point where it just didn't feel like we could keep doing the residency and I have no regrets about it ending at a certain time. Like it was a, it was a good chunk of time, and we got a lot done. And uh, yeah, got some good memories from it. When you say illustration jobs, what do you mean exactly? Just like editorial illustration work for like different magazines. Like I had had a good run with the New York Times for a few years, where their art director kept was asking me to do do work, just stuff like that, um, which was really good. And an artist that I connected with through Islands Fold um, put me on to a pretty good illustration gig. So that was a good boost for me. Um, just, yeah, another artist just giving me a, an opportunity, which is pretty amazing. So just, yeah, building on different relationships over the years. And uh, that's how it kind of started up. This is something I want to hear a little bit more about is that you mentioned that you're working at the gas station and then you made a decision that you wanted to follow through on taking your art career more seriously. And so that sounds great on paper, but the reality of that is that that's a bit of a sketchy proposition in terms of being able to regularly bring in income. And it's it's a big leap to do that. What made you decide that it was important at that time to follow through on that decision and what kept you motivated and going? I don't think it's that sketchy being a young person in my, my 20s with no dependence or huge responsibilities and rent wasn't, you know, that expensive. And like I've I've always had a belief in in myself and things working out. And I think I think that's a huge part of part of it is just yeah, having having that belief and just feeling, you know, a, a confidence that it's gonna that it's gonna work out. So, and I I liked working at the gas station. It was a pretty chill job, and the people I worked for were really nice. Um, the people I worked with were super nice too. But I also knew that I wouldn't be able to make enough money 
in that job to pursue certain things that I wanted to do as well. So yeah, it's just timing. Timing seemed seemed good, and uh, yeah. Okay. Well, you, you use the words uh, having a confidence and then also a belief in yourself. Those are things that not everybody comes by, and. I am curious as to where that developed for you, because I, th- I think that in in most people's lives that those feelings are uh, fleeting or, you know, they're intermittent, but it's really hard to uh, to hang on to those for long periods of time. So with you saying that that you had those feelings, where do you think those uh, first began within you? I feel that for most of my life, I've had an inner confidence or inner knowing about pursuing the things that I want to pursue. And that can be a very solo motivated journey. But as I get older, like I have more appreciation or understanding that the individual spirit or the self-confidence or the inner knowing, the inner love can only go so far unless it has the support and the nurturing of others that believe in it and it's a reciprocal thing and if one is like too self-motivated and doesn't have a connection to others or feel like supported in others in a in a holistic reciprocal way then i think that could be quite a dangerous thing and could lead to i don't know sen- sense of loneliness or just um I don't know, I can't speak for others, but I can only speak for myself, is that I feel like I've had good supports over the years. Like, you know, mentioning the art teachers that I mentioned earlier, just give me that extra little nudge. I had a good upbringing. My parents were good to me. So, yeah, I mean, I've been afforded a lot of privileges that maybe a lot of, that some people don't have. That being said, I don't think the privileges are the only thing that helped me have that confidence. I've always been making art and that's just something that I know that I've wanted to do and it's how I've entertained myself. And so I guess I'm just fortunate that I've been able to be able to keep doing that. I, I like what you're saying about it uh, being this uh, reciprocal act that <laughs> it's it's not just one way. But that's, no, yeah. it's really cool to hear the the recognition that like you you were able to actually receive encouragement that was being provided to you. That's what I'm understanding you're saying. Yeah, and it also ties into that thing we were talking about earlier about hitchhiking and and trust in people um, going out of their way for a stranger. Or there was, uh, when we were running Islands Fold, the residency, this artist from New York, Mike Perry, he just mailed us a check for a thousand bucks. And he was like, I wish you guys all the best. Like, I love what you're doing. Like, no strings attached. He wasn't like asking for anything in return. He was just, giving us a donation. Like, I really like what you guys are doing. And that had a huge impact on me. I'm like, wow, like this artist that is getting cool projects and doing work is actually like giving back to another artist. Like it's such a beautiful thing. And I feel like that's the, that's the karmic force that exists in the universe. It's just, it's, um, yeah. And like, not just giving something to someone to get something back, but just giving for giving. And then when you receive that, that gift, then it'll go out that way in another way to someone else. So, you know, it's, uh, I do feel blessed for that. Just, you know, having that, those karmic forces enter my life. That's really great. And 
on, on top of this, well, too, something that I failed to mention is that uh, you have no uh, professional training. You didn't go and take any art classes post-secondary or do anything along those lines? No. I, I thought of traveling as my as my education, and I went to lots of museums and galleries and just explored the world and looked at art in that way. That was kind of my my approach. I think art school can be really great for for people that want to learn certain skills and learn a certain way or connect with different artists and stuff like that. Um, it just wasn't something that that I pursued. Yeah, and that's kind of amazing. You know, my my wife did go to art school and she she didn't finish, but uh, we were talking about this uh, quite a while ago, and she brings up the fact that um, a huge part about being at art school is making connections with people. That's what she uh, it can be, yeah, yeah. yeah. And for better and worse, you know, I mean, some of it is making connections with certain systems that are nepotistic or just hierarchical or, or, yeah, built built in a certain way that, um, whatever, gatekeeping type stuff, there's that, or there's uh, like organic, natural connections that are about supporting each other and blossoming uh, a creative community, so... But it sounds like you were able to build up connections uh, through creations on your own, through in particular what you described with Islands Fold. Yeah, and- yeah, just reaching out to different people or just finding someone's address and mailing them a piece of art or a zine or something or just going to the bookstore and just looking up art magazines and looking up art directors or whatever, just like mailing out to people. Yeah. And just so people also have context as well, too, at this time, what style of art were you focusing on? Mainly drawings, like cartoons and abstract drawings for the most part. Yeah. Which were incredibly elaborate and intricate and epic, uh, some of them for sure. Thanks. Yeah, some for sure. And actually, I'll mention, too, that you and Jennifer were supportive of Islands Fold and you bought art from us. Like early early on, before we even had like a like a deeper friendship, and I thought that was really cool that you guys, as creative people, believed in that too and were supportive. So, you know, it was it was just cool to see people just appreciate it and get behind it. Totally. Actually, I commissioned you to do a, a piece of art for a, a friend show that I was doing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I was so impressed with what you did. I, I asked yeah, you to do a Russian doll of myself. Russian doll Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I love that. I, I still have that today. Yeah. That's... And at that time, I was really into doing illustration. So I was I was um, quite receptive to someone approaching me and being like, I have this idea. This is what I'm looking for. And me being if I could get excited about it and get behind it and be able to, to draw it. I mean, I wouldn't just draw anything for anybody, but yeah, I mean, illustration is kind of fun because it's um, trying to fig- solve a problem, basically. What do you mean it's trying to solve a problem? It's um, someone's offering a challenge or a, a problem to solve. Like I have these these words, these ideas, but I need to put it to, to some image, but it needs to um, convey this thing or needs this, these colors or whatever, like all these different components. So it's trying to solve, like, find a solution to that proposal. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so <laughs> with what I asked you to do, uh, to use as, as an example, I said, okay, I want to do a fringe poster for the show that I'm doing. And I would like to have myself as a Russian doll with, you know, open up and 
I don't even know if I like how specific I was with what I was asking for because I wasn't even too sure. And I was thinking, oh, I'll just leave it in Luke, the artist's hands to do. And that plays into what you're saying about problem solving, about, you know, yeah. maybe having a vague uh, description of what's required. So in terms of that problem solving that's going on, is that uh, a friction that you find enjoyable or painful? Most times it's 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 joyful and sometimes it's painful depends on the client depends what the what the circumstance is i mean in the almost 20 years of doing this i've only had less than a handful of projects that that fell apart or didn't work out so i think that's pretty good that that is pretty good <laughs> but the uh the beginning process of sitting there at a blank page and um being asked to produce something do you find that there's uh, a lot of time spent figuring it out or you just get pen to paper and just and just uh figure it out that way what's your process yeah i'll sketch maybe i'll sketch something out or just think about it go for a hike and just like just yeah just get the gears going on in the brain and just think about it before we did this interview today i went through your website and i was uh, scrolling through looking at the uh epic scope of work that you've done and uh it's it's certainly not everything and it's just it's just mind-boggling to me man like it really is right like that no, thanks you're welcome and i mean that sincerely <laughs> what you've been able to create over the years is uh it's phenomenal to me in terms of uh the amount of work that you've done in terms of constantly going to the well of creativity and coming up with new ideas can you put into words how you go about doing that coming up with new ideas yeah it's been a well that's been always flowing like i don't i always have ideas executing those ideas is where it gets can be more challenging um an idea in my heart and mind to just put it on paper is one thing, but if I want to take that idea that's on paper and turn it into something bigger than that, whether it's um, a mural or a sculpture or animation or whatever, then that's a whole different thing. So I don't, I don't run out of ideas, but I think what I can get caught up in is what's the intention or the purpose of where those ideas are going to end up being an artist that hasn't, uh, what am I trying to say? If there's no audience for the work, then it's going to be a lot harder for me to make a living from it, obviously. So where can the piece exist in the world outside of my own world? And sometimes that can be a really hard thing to figure out. Huh. Okay. I've I never even considered that. But so that's actually an idea or a thought that's pretty front of mind for you is that not just creating the piece of art, but also what is the marketability or saleability, if that's a word. Not even the marketability or saleability. It doesn't. Well, it doesn't have. It doesn't have to have a, a, like a financial reward or or something from it. But just why is it deserving of existing outside of my own realm? Like, what's what's the point, basically? Like, what's what's the intention here? What's the point? And if there's no point or purpose then yeah then it's going to be hard for me to just put it out there if that makes sense it does make sense yeah. but i'm curious about that point or purpose does that get conveyed to you through words in your own mind or uh how is that articulated or is it just a thought 
and within yourself that winds up coming out as you're creating art or before you create the art? Are you able to pinpoint that at all? Mm, maybe it's just a thought that I need to just actually put into a, into a feeling and then let that feeling work itself out in in the world outside myself. Maybe that's just what what happens is just to, I won't I won't know until I till I try. And then once I try, then I'll get the understanding of what that intention or purpose is. So yeah, I guess thinking too much about uh, or having concern of the intent of where it's going to end up, um, sometimes just putting it out there will give itself an answer. And that's what makes um, like street art and just, yeah, renegade art projects that just get put out into the world. And um, And I do do that. I painted a abandoned building recently which was super fun and had no idea about what I was going to paint just showed up and did something and I really enjoy that Um, and I do that often in my own studio practice and in my sketchbook or on on canvas but to do it out in the world like that is is very exciting Um, and then I want to sometimes tap into that excitement in the world where I can make a living from it and most times I do, so I'm grateful for that. Just to clarify as well, too, as you're working on the piece of art, the reason for doing it can come more into focus and or also change as that process is uh, is happening where the, uh, the paint's going on to canvas or wood or whatever it is you're working on. It can, yeah. And it can like, it can run off into like another, another thing that will spark a whole, a whole new thing. Well, that's the beautiful thing about art, right? Like that's, and so, (laughs) you know, to bring it back to what's going on in this very moment, this conversation that we're having, right? Like I have kind of a purpose about what I want to attempt to accomplish before we get started, but I I never know how these conversations are going to go, right? If I did, there would be no point in doing them, right? So yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's like the creativity of a a conversation between two people is that you'll say a thing that'll trigger me into thinking something and then away we go, right? And the audience is there to be a witness at a later date to, to hear this and that. That's what's so beautiful about creativity. And, and, uh, I, I feel like, uh, having that creative flow and spark in your life is such a wonderful thing to have. And for me, looking at you who's uh, someone who's a close friend and like how you're able to uh, create that or turn this experience of creativity into a living for you know as many years as you have which is just uh, amazing and and like I really uh, huge kudos to you for for spending as much time as you do in the world participating in a creative way and uh, having such uh, such amazing output I think we're going to get back into a little bit more talking about creative process and art, but I want to also make sure that we, uh, we bring this up to speed with your time working, uh, as the artist in residence in Victoria, which is a big thing I wanted to talk about with you here today. So yeah, we can talk about that. And I appreciate the kudos. I, I do, but at the same time, I don't, it's like, I, ha- I have like, thank you. Like I have grat- gratitude for that, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know what else I would be doing. Like I'm going to be doing it anyway. So it's not like I'm, and I'm sure I have some challenges like anybody, but I'm not, ah, what am I trying to say? It's 
it's not like I don't have hardships, but overall, like it's, it's not, it's, it's easy going. Um, so I'll, it's just come natural to me. So it's not like, I don't know, like people, yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Well, okay. With writers, for instance, I've spent uh, periods of time over my life writing and, uh, I've listened to a lot of writers over the years and there is a common theme of this deep struggle about trying to get the work done because it's hard. It's hard to do that particular kind of art form, but I don't think that's unique to writing. I think that being able to, to sit down and create art on a regular basis is quite a challenging thing to do, but it doesn't, for me, like it, in in talking to you in the past and now as well too it seems that that's not necessarily your experience that it's it's as much as a like a struggle to you as it is just an embracing of uh of who you are and what you got to do during the day yeah totally and the, i mean and the struggles are there are there but they're not um they're not making me lo- lose sleep at night some something you said um before we got into this though that really uh sparked in me thinking about is What's so amazing about art is that it's one of the few things that you can do where you can hold space for knowing what you're doing and be so confident, but at the same time, don't know what the fuck you're doing. And there's no other thing that is like that. Like you can't not know what you're doing with food. It's going to taste bad. You can't not know what you're doing flying a plane. You can't not know what you're doing being a doctor in surgery. But in art, you can be that and have the confidence in in being that and some amazing stuff can come out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. How often do you have that feeling come across you where you feel like you don't know what you're doing? Um, once in a while. Once in a while. And it's, it's, it's amazing, exhilarating. And that usually happens in, um, like, yeah, the stuff that's just free-flowing and just see what comes of it. That that said, though, it can go off the rails a bit. I need to kind of reel it back in and then get back to like some inner like source or, or reference or things that do work to then ground it. Yeah. Yeah. But when you said it can be exciting, I'm sure that can really be exciting because uh, if that were to never happen in your life again, wouldn't you think that would be such a loss? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, and that's the, another thing about art is that the subjectivity of it is that, um, yeah, not not knowing what you're doing, but just going forth anyway. I mean, it can be perceived any way by anybody. So it, it doesn't necessarily like it, it feels I'm sure like there's no ground underneath you at certain points. But um, yeah, you can always get back to a, a safe place, I would imagine, by acknowledging that um, this is art and um, it's it's open to interpretation. Yeah. So you were the artist in residence in Victoria uh, beginning in uh, late 2016. And uh, you did some amazing work around the city of Victoria. I had the wonderful opportunity to speak to Catherine Calder, who took over that uh, position from you after you left and asked her about her involvement with uh, her particular projects. And uh, now I'm going to ask you, but before we get to that, I I don't want to gloss over what happened between that time on Pender and, and getting that, uh, that job. 
with the city of Victoria, which, by the way, that was the first time they ever had an artist in residence. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So we moved from Pender up to the Sunshine Coast, and a friend of mine was starting up a coffee shop there, Colin McRae, starting up this base camp coffee shop. So Ange and I were at the beginning of that, um, helping him and some other people get it going. And then um, I was just uh, still doing the art and started getting more into painting. And then a friend reached out and just said, like, check this out, like artisan residency position. I think you should look into this thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, this seems like would be a good fit for me because it feel like I'm community orientated. I've done a lot of collaboration and uh, yeah, I went for it. And um, it was such a, such an amazing experience for me. It helped me do a lot of things that I didn't think I would be able to do in a reasonably short amount of time. The residency lasted for two years and three months. And um, I just, yeah, took on a lot of stuff. And I, Took on a lot of jobs outside of the residency too at the time, so just worked full tilt for a few years, and I got pretty burnt out at one one point where I was like, "Oh, this isn't healthy. Like, I need to check in with myself here because I was pretty gung ho." But in that time, you were pretty gung ho because you wanted to get a lot done with this uh, this job that you just wanted to seize the opportunity and seize the moment and ride the wave as much as I could. Okay, let's dig into uh, some of the pieces that you did. Maybe we'll uh, we'll culminate with the uh, the piece that uh, is on the uh, the women in need store, the side of that building there, which was a huge collaborative project you did. But maybe if you want to fill in the listeners some of the uh, the work that you did around the city that was temporary and some of the stuff that's still there today. Sure. So if anyone's interested, um, you can check out my website. There's a section where I documented all the work that I did because there is I did do a lot of different projects, um, solo and collaborative. The wind mural that you mentioned was a collaborative mural with 10 different artists. And it was this um, this pathway that kind of wraps around the side of four different walls. And there was a very specific color palette that tied everything together. And the transition from each artist to the next flowed really nicely. It was beautiful. It was a really fun project but also time sensitive and uh, I like having a leadership role and I like to delegate and understand who would be good for what and all that stuff but being a boss sucks I find like you know trying to make sure that everybody shows up on time for the when there's like time constraints and stuff like that and and artists are uh you know, I'm an artist and we're we're a sensitive, weird kind of breed and it's hard to manage all that. So it, it had its challenges, but overall it was great because everybody was like friends with one another and just create these connections and it was it was a lot of fun. Um so yeah, there's a lot of projects, but one project that really stood out to me was doing this mural down on the water and then to launch this mural light invited Denny, um, who we know, who I went for a hike with this morning, to play some violin music. And then I invited this woman named Cedar, who's a yoga meditation teacher. I invited her to do guided meditation. And then I got this, asked this um, costume designer that works on uh, in the film industry to help 
create this owl tent suit that I did a drawing of. So her and her daughter built this amazing owl tent suit. So I had the tent character um, next to this mural with Denny playing violin and this woman, Cedar, doing the guided meditation. And then people will go inside the tent suit and put on a VR headset and then make VR art online for the first time, like people that have never experienced creating VR art. So it had all these different components and it was super wild and it was it was fun. Multimedia. Yeah, totally. And um and I also mentioned this too. When I was painting the mural, this elderly John was walking down the beach and he was not too happy with what I was painting and he he shared his opinions with me and I was like, okay, well, I appreciate appreciate you sharing with me with that. It's, yeah, art's open to interpretation. He was kind of grumpy about it, but whatever. And then he ended up part- being a participant in this in this thing. So it was kind of kind of fun to see this guy being grumpy a few weeks prior, but then he was open to being a part of this immersive experience. Right on. Yeah. And so it, another mural that uh, like I just love is the uh, the Mother Protector Hawk and Home mural. That's the yeah. That's the mural that I was talking about. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. And so um, yeah. I'll I'll put a link to your website and people can find it there. But uh, just the the picture of that one, looking back on that, because I've seen it in person, but uh, I I just love the idea that uh, was conceived there about having the image of the bird and like the the wing wrapping around and sense of protection and thanks and just using the natural structure and the shape of it and then coming yeah. up with an idea. yeah creating that natural structure to then become the art itself and I that's kind of rare when that happens where you get a curved wall like that. Um, and I always like to consider the the environment of of a mural and a piece and how it can yeah, relate to the surrounding areas. Yeah. And then something else as well too was uh was it on New Year's that you were working outside of the Parliament buildings? Yeah, I um projected animations on the Empress Hotel and the Parliament buildings on on New Year's and that was really cool to see. Yeah, they did a really good job of of mapping out the projections for for that project, and yeah, it was just cool growing up in Victoria and how iconic the those buildings are, and just yeah, to see my art like moving across the Empress and then looking up and seeing hotel guests in the windows like inside the art it was pretty cool to see. <laughs> totally, yeah. totally. And so it was, that's an example of uh, one of the temporary ones. It was like you know just uh, an event that took place on one particular evening. But uh, to this day, the the murals that you put up in different places throughout the city of Victoria remain. <laughs> yeah, well, some, but the Hawk and um, Hawk and Home one, it was done in a very, like in a hotspot graffiti zone. And so when I was in the position of artisan residence, they got a letter from a resident that was saying, like, why don't there be, why isn't, isn't there a mural in this spot? Like there's all this pretty crass graffiti um and so i was like oh okay well let, yeah let's entertain this idea so uh, i proposed to the city that maybe we could do a mural there and um got two other artists to add to it so jill stanton did painted the inside and then this um other graffiti artist crisp did the top part of the path and and then that Mural basically was like untouched for a year and a half, maybe almost two years. But then the odd tag would start showing up. And then 
we coated the mural with like anti-graffiti coating, but that stuff doesn't really prevent like a big buff or whatever. You can't, it doesn't really do that much. And the weather conditions down there are really severe. It's a really stormy area. So that wall gets attacked pretty bad. So anyway, over the years, it's just started collecting these tags and graffiti. But now it's like morphed into this like beautiful organic um, graffiti wall. And I feel like there needs to be quote, free walls for, for graffiti, for people to just experiment and throw stuff up. So it's just in this kind of funny spot where it's, you know, that's what it's become. And before they were just painting it over gray for many years, which is super boring. So I hope it just stays this way. So it sounds like you have a pretty um, positive outlook in terms of the work that you did being tagged and oh yeah it's a total like it's it's a win-win i got i got to have my art in this beautiful spot on the beat i got to paint that mural in the most beautiful place and then see that work exist there for almost a couple years and then it just organically change into this this new thing which i hope it remains like i think that's way better than it just being a gray wall how did you find doing the work because you just mentioned that you got to work in this beautiful place and uh, wherever you're doing a mural, you're outside and presumably uh, in the public sphere with people being around and watching what you're doing a little bit and you have the outdoor elements. How do you enjoy the process of doing murals? Well, that's just hard not to enjoy. It's like on the beach, um, windsurfers in the distance, beautiful sun and people just enjoying life um, on the beach. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. It's not always that way. I did a mural in Calgary um, a couple of years ago at a homeless shelter and um, addiction clinic. And uh, that was like a pretty intense place to do a mural. I met some beautiful people there and a lot of characters. And it was a great experience, but it was a very challenging place to, to paint because, yeah, it just, it just was. So, yeah, it varies. Yeah, for sure. Do you have a count, like more or less, of how many murals you've uh, been a part of in your life? Maybe like almost 30 murals I've done, I think. I haven't been doing as many um, in recent years. I've been doing more studio work. And I love doing murals, but they're, it's a lot of work. They're very physical. Can you remember the first mural that you were asked to do? First mural I was asked to do, this is a good question, was in um, Taiwan, and it was at this bar that was run by this alcoholic professor who hated the mural so so much that he painted it over. I didn't even get time to take a photo of it. <laughs> so it was like pretty... He's lightning quick. If you didn't have time to take a picture of it, man, that guy works fast. Well, yeah, I, I, I painted it and then went home like, patting myself on the back thinking oh i did such a good job of this this thing and then i come by the next day and it's just gone it's like totally erased and i'm like dude like what what's up why why did you paint over this like and he's like i hate hello kitty and what i did is i was i did inverted hello kitties so i was trying to play off because hello kitty is huge in taiwan and asia it's all over the place and so i did an inverted one where i took hello kitty and turned turned Hello Kitty upside down and turned it into this like vampire kind of ghost thing that was basically Hello Kitty upside down. But he couldn't see that. He could just, all he could see was the Hello Kitty thing. So uh, yeah, it was a humbling experience, but it was it was good to just have that experience and just uh, I move on. And then I ended up doing a mural at a toy store in Taipei like a few months later. 
Okay. How did that come about being asked to do a mural in Taipei? And a- I just was just in this um, kind of cool fashion clothing store that sold cool art toys. And I just started talking to the guy about stuff that we liked. And then we just, I think I just asked maybe like, would you want to have a mural? And he was like, sure. Like bought me lunch and beer and stuff. And yeah, it was great. Okay. This is something I'm interested as well, too, is that because uh, from what I was aware of early on in your career, it was basically ink and paper you were working with. Yeah. Um, And so to make that transition to go to uh, drywall, presumably, and and house paint, did you find that an easy transition with with switching to those materials or not really? Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I was primarily doing like hyper detailed freehand drawings, like pen and ink drawings for a really long time. And doing murals here and there, which were the complete opposite, I would do more bold shape, layered shapes, abstract shapes. And then doing murals for so long that I just realized, well, I could actually just start putting this onto canvas. I'm putting all this effort into walls. Why not start doing it on canvas? So then I started painting canvases maybe seven years ago. When I saw that transition happen, that was such a beautiful thing to see because your style totally changed yeah. in my mind, yeah. right? Yeah. What were you experiencing during that time creatively that you can speak about in terms of the direction that you were going and uh, the inspirations you were having? I was doing murals indoors and, and outdoors. And I did some murals that were actually quite reflective of my drawing style for a few years. The one being a collaboration I did with Josh Holinati in Edmonton. I did one at Drake Hotel in Toronto. So there were some that were hyper-detailed like drawing style murals. But I think what happened with me is that I was drawing for so long, doing a lot of illustration work. And then Madrona Gallery gave me a really awesome opportunity to have a solo exhibition with them. So I did these really large, intricate drawings and did a couple of shows with them with the drawings. And then I got to this point where I felt like I was trying to push these drawings so far in my mind that I felt like I kind of got to where I wanted to go with them. And so I just felt like a change. And so that's why I started wanting to push more into the into the painting. I still draw and it's still a part of my practice and always will be, but I've just carved out more time now for doing painting. How did things change for you uh, once you decided to put more time into painting versus drawing? I think painting kind of gave me just gave me a little bit more time to not feeling I guess I hustled for so for so many years and just being part of uh, getting my work out there and doing so many different jobs for different people and stuff and I feel like painting kind of changed my perspective on that a lot huh. well what do you mean by that exactly um just afforded me more more time I think just uh yeah okay well when you said that you spent a lot of time hustling in the past because because to me like this is a great success story right the the idea that you really spent a lot of time dedicating yourself <laughs> and working really hard and it sounds it just sounds like a, su- a success story. it's a I success mean. story luke it is it, well how like okay so seriously man how many people are working artists out there lots lots and i i feel like it's Obviously, it's not going to work out great for everyone, but there's so many artists that are thriving and making a living off it. And I feel like art has become 
more appreciated and integrated into into things. People take notice of it more now, I feel. But in terms of me saying like this is a success story and like you and I are friends, right? So yeah, like yeah. let's let's cue a little bit of good ribbing and joking around here. But you just talked about hustling. You just talked about like having years spending to hustle and like make things happen and it afforded you more time, right? If you didn't put that time into hustling, then Oh yeah, for sure. That's why I really like hip hop music. Like I like listening to rappers. Um I didn't have to deal drugs to get to what I'm doing, so that's awesome. But a lot of the rappers that I listened to did. They were on the street selling drugs and then just hearing of them coming up and what they had to do to survive. And um, there's just this bravado and, and energy that I find really inspiring in that in that music. You know, aside from the like misogyny and, and violence, it's like there's like a there's an energy and uh the hustle it's a it's it's a weird one it can be it can be interpreted in in two different ways um there's the hustle of it that's not so great in terms of um you know where people are stepping on others to get to a certain place in like a capitalist type structure but then there's there's the hustle of just believing in what you do enough to just cold call or knock on doors enough to not be afraid and not be afraid to hear no and not afraid for someone to say they're not into your thing because it doesn't matter because you believe in it enough to just keep keep going. And that's the, that's the hustle that I'm speaking to. But it is it can be exhausting or it can, it's a lot. So, yeah. Yeah, and so when you said that you were doing the artist in residency and then you were feeling a sense of burnout because you were working on other things on the side as well too. And then I believe you mentioned as well that you wanted to grab hold of the opportunity and really make something i never felt like burnt out with the island's fall thing i just felt that i wasn't able to make no no the artist in residency oh yeah no there was a moment there where i was burnt out for sure like i just took on way too much at one time right but that stemmed from sort of recognizing that this was like a, a unique moment in your working career where you have this title and you have this opportunity and then yeah, grabbing hold and making sure that like you could maybe pull yourself up to the next level after that. Is that accurate or? I just seized that opportunity. You know, that's, I figured that was the time to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super curious about how things work from behind the scenes a little bit because you do uh, commissions for people. You're, you also do commissions for businesses. People approach you and, uh, ask you to do jobs and this is this is a source of your income obviously right yeah and then doing that so how do people find you (laughs) like uh what what sort of asks do you get because you get asked to do murals or to do a label for a beer can or to do a private piece for somebody's home when these offers come in, what's what sort of a sense do you get when you open up the email and you see these things? Is it like sweet uh, or like is there a negotiation that goes on? How does that all look from behind the scenes uh, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I'm often saying sweet and and grateful. I also, I guess there's so many different um people and projects and things that that come about because I feel like I'm able to just explore so many different ways of getting my art out and into the world, different mediums, different 
people, whatever. So I feel like it's kind of like throwing out as many seeds into the garden and see which ones will grow. And so that's kind of how it is. It's just, it's organic. And once in a while, I do think like, how did this person find out about me? But I've never, I've never asked to, because I felt like that would just be weird to ask. Like, how did you find out about, I don't know. I just... <laughs> I mean, maybe I have thought about it, but I, I've never actually asked someone. You could send them a survey after you're done doing the work. How did you find out about Luke Ramsey? It's not a bad idea. Eh? Survey. Get the uh, insight, the stats. Yeah. Um, yeah, just different things. I mean, it's all, um, it's all like interconnected, I find. One thing leads into another. Um, yeah, word of mouth or just being a, like connected to a mural festival project or a different thing. I mean, it's all just, it's all about connectivity. It all connects. What's been one of the projects that you've worked on in uh, recent years that surprised you in terms of uh, really feeding your soul? Because, you know, like it's work, right? Some work is better than others, but what's been one that really stands out is like, wow, that felt really good. Uh, I recently finished up a project that I didn't think was going to work out. And it really f filled my soul when it did. And I feel like when I was speaking to how sometimes there are hardships or there are challenges, sometimes in those, ch if you, if I can find the way to get through those challenges and keep my ego in check, then it can be an amazing thing. And if I let my ego get the better of me and feel like, oh, I don't need to like compromise on this or find a, you know, just whatever, then it's not going to work out. And so, what I've learned over the years is to just um, that problem solving thing that I was talking about, just just find find a way to make it work. And so I was approached by the Canadian government. Um, sounds kind of funny to say it like that, but the Canadian government approached me to do a double-sided mural for their um, embassy in El Salvador and pitch them this idea and they weren't super on board with my approach to it. And the way that they responded to it, I was like, oh, this is not like, this is not going to happen now. This is like going to go super sideways. And maybe it was just the language and the way it, it came across, or maybe I took it a different way. But I just paused for a moment. And I just thought, really got inside of like, what do they want here? And how can I make this work for them and for me? So that we're like both super excited about it. And took me a, like a, a moment to just figure it out. And then I figured it out and came back with them with something that did work and it worked out. And so it's going to be two different images on this wall that comes down from the ceiling that separates a larger room. And I haven't seen it. Oh, and it's a um, digital piece, so it'll get printed up on this, this wall. And so I haven't seen it uh, installed yet, but I think it's getting installed any day now. So I'm really excited to like see the, the, final, the final piece. Cool. So yeah. like an aspect to that was likable about this experience was the fact that there was like a ability for you to like step back and like you said, check your ego a little bit and then also problem solve. Yeah, because it's this thing where there's this opportunity for me to showcase my world or my like how I see the world through, through my art. And there's also this opportunity to share in how this space and what that environment wants to convey too. So it's a it's a partnership. It's a, coll a collaboration of sorts. And so I've got to just find a way to 
understand the context of like what that environment is going to be and still find a sense of of play in it because I don't like I've never done work that's been or take on work that's highly prescriptive that that just takes the fun out of it for me so there still has to be that level of fun but sometimes a little bit of um those challenges can help something else come out that maybe I didn't expect and sometimes a creative director or someone else can make a suggestion that that's awesome and then I can work off that it really it really depends well, there's so much to this, man. Like, there's so much that goes on that, uh, like, I don't quite understand from behind the scenes that uh, we'll have more time in the future to talk about. But I think it's really, it's really intriguing to hear just even like a bit of the stories about being contacted by the Canadian government. And they didn't want you to become part of like a covert operation or anything. They just wanted you to do. I a, can't speak about that. Oh, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's, I think there's so many cool little little elements about uh, about that. And like the back and forth as well, too, about, you know, like uh, we have an idea and then you have a concept and they want to change it. And now it goes back and forth. And then ultimately something does get created and people get to see it because it goes out into the world. Yeah. It's also, it's it's funny for me because I'm, like I was talking, like being a punk rocker and growing up with punk and I've been, you know, have this sort of anti-authoritarian sentiment and I've never been, you know, I, I've i worked with municipal governments, with the federal government. Like I, I work with governments, but I, but in a way where I'm like seeing that there are departments and aspects of government that believe in art and want to support art and want to share that art in other parts of the world. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. And just because I don't like governments around the world that, you know, want to buy weapons to murder people, um, it's, such a, it's such a hard thing for me to balance sometimes is that when is it okay to say yes to this project and when it isn't? And we've spoken about this, but last April Fool's Day, I posted up a thing where I said that I made some art for this military fighter jet company and I was getting my art like put on this this fighter jet and people were like all right on like congratulations man and I'm just like what the heck like do people not does my audience not know like what I'm about and that was such a weird like social experiment to see because I would never put my art on a on a war machine yeah it was April Fool so I I was like thought that it people would like get it right away but a lot of people I think I I think what's interesting too is because I've done so many different projects over the years from like you know my my friend's band doing a poster for my friend's gig to doing some like corporate client is that people would think oh yeah well the, he, this guy would be open to doing art on different things so yeah it was just interesting to to see the response to that yeah for sure for sure it was uh and you have a history of being a uh, april fools practical joker <laughs> you and i have a history of can we talk about that yeah of That's... course yeah yeah totally yeah do you want to pretty... talk about it yeah please do yeah that was really fun yeah so i'll just give the setup here is that uh when jenna and i first moved to pender island we became friends with luke and Ange, and then Luke uh, came up with this idea to do an April Fool's Day prank and uh, enlisted our help. And the prank was? The prank was to take down all of the notices and posters on the community bulletin board at the Driftwood Center, put them in an envelope so they weren't destroyed, but put them to the side, and then create our own posters and notices and put them up on the board. So we had things like missing bow constrictor snake, um, the movie playing at the hall that month was going to be some like really horrible movie. And the, and we had, didn't we have an ad for like a, 
pot dealer. This was like before pot was legal. Yeah, totally. So, so just, it was looking for somebody was looking for a job. They moved down from the Kootenays and yeah. like you know put some images of pot leaves on there, and they were a green thumb, and uh, yeah. they could help you with that. Also, there was a uh, going to be a. Uh, community referendum on whether or not we should uh, increase the deer population because the there, <laughs> there was a survey done that uh <clears throat> tourists really like the deer so maybe we needed to increase them by 50 percent. yeah yeah we got really creative and we had quite a variety and uh, yeah it was a good one i think people were like taken by some of them oh yeah totally yeah. well i went back to look at it that uh because we did it in the middle of the night we took down all the signs and then we uh we carefully put them in a manila envelope and like tacked that onto the bottom of the board and then every single sign on there we replaced with a, a fake one so yeah. there's about 20 fake signs it's like um fun mischief nobody gets hurt and kind of rebellious <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of awesome it was good little middle of the night mission yeah and uh yeah I, I, people had actually written things on the posters being like this is crazy <laughs> yeah but this yeah i mean i haven't i haven't mentioned this to anyone ever outside of like us and maybe a few friends so it's kind of funny to talk about it now yeah totally well yeah it's been it's been 13 years or something like that so uh we're we're safe we're good uh i was thinking about humor today so you're coming over and i was thinking what are we going to talk about right because we've known each other for a long time and uh i was thinking about how this conversation was going to go this is a podcast other people are listening and I thought, okay, well, there's there's going to be a level of humor that Luke and I will not go to in this podcast because... You got that right. <laughs> we, we got that out earlier, didn't we? I, we totally did. We totally did get that out earlier. But it's, it's, a, it's interesting, like the intersection of humor and friendship, I thought, about this. And that um, you and I have uh, pretty out there senses of humor, I would say. And I, I feel like we're able to connect on that level by uh, by saying some things that might be misinterpreted if they were to be uh, overheard in public, let's say. But w- within the safety of our, our friendship, we're able to communicate on a level that uh, is really enjoyable for me and uh, and fun to do. But there's few people I can go there with. But what's your interpretation of of the importance of humor in your life? Because as I mentioned before, you do love playing practical jokes especially april fool's day jokes yeah and, i'm a bit of, yeah i'm a bit of a trickster and a yeah shit disturber or a yeah stir the pot kind of guy sometimes for sure um i think humor is it's a like a again to bring up this word trust it's like when you have a trust with the audience or the person you're telling a joke to or a comfort level um like you think about like stand-up comics that we really love and they can say the, the harshest things to an audience that will just go along for that ride with them and get away with it because they've built that trust with the audience. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Um, but the other, and this is, this is actually not funny at all. I'm going to say something that's not funny at all. But a few weeks ago, our dear friend's dog of 17 years passed away. And uh, this dog was a friend of our dogs and uh my wife and I like helped helped our friend like through the whole process so we met at the vet the dog got put down because it was 17 years old and it was just it was time and it was a really hard thing to do and we carried this dog back to their property and we dug dug a hole and we did a ceremony you know said some nice words shed some tears the whole the whole thing 
And uh, it was a really sad, emotional, and beautiful experience. And then we took our friend out for dinner the next day just to check in and see how she was doing. And um, this is a friend that I would say is in the same comfort zone as I, with the friendship I have with you, where I feel like I can joke around or like say the harsh, harsh things and she'll say the har harsh things too. And it's like in jest and it's fun. And I love that. And I love having friendships where you can like joke around and go to those, those, those places. Right. And so I'm have a similar friendship with, th with this friend where we just kind of rib each other and just whatever, um, tease each other and just say the harshest thing. So we take our friend out for dinner the next night and in the casualness of this this friendship and what I've all also known, of course I had like sensitivity to the fact that we just buried this dog like the day before, like it was a pretty intense thing. And there were even jokes made like during that process to like lighten the lighten the tone of the day, right? That that happens. But this night at dinner, I tried to tell a joke that just didn't land. Like it was just so inappropriate because it was related to. Um, the passing of her dog and she didn't totally get it and she was obviously having a tough time because she's going through this grief and through this process and she didn't like totally get it but then she did register it and my wife was like uh, like not really having it but there was a, like enough love in that that friendship for it to like not be a thing not be an issue and I just say able to just recognize that it wasn't like appropriate but it was it was okay do you know what I mean? Like it was just okay that I tried to be funny in something that just so wasn't and it wasn't appropriate and I had to just like sit with it. But like in the company of a friend that would just be like, yeah, like it's, it's all good. Like she wasn't just like, you you know, you a-hole for saying that. How could you say that? My dog died the day before. Like you're so insane. You know, it wasn't like that. So it's just sometimes you can just have this trust with people where you, um, what am I trying to get? It's like... It's, like sometimes you have to allow the times where it doesn't hit or it doesn't doesn't receive well because maybe that happens once in a blue moon where it's super awkward and, and not so great. But if you allow those moments, then the good ones will come through. Totally. Well, I, what I'm hearing you talk about is pushing boundaries a bit and then having enough grace to allow for people to push past a boundary but yeah, not and totally shit the bed sometimes <laughs> yeah for sure and then not give them too hard of a time about it because ultimately what's at the core of the individual is the most important thing right and and understanding where that person's heart really is where their heart is what their intention is yeah i mean it's one thing to just go around like telling malicious jokes to try and like hurt people but if your intention is to make people laugh because laughter is medicine and that's the heart of the person then maybe check in with that but it's a it's a loaded topic i mean people are obviously very sensitive these days to all sorts of things and um some people just can't take a joke yeah but i i find it really interesting though like in terms of um because it seems like humor is is pretty important to you right that like when we get together we usually laugh quite a lot we do yeah yeah, totally. Okay. And and humor is really important to me as well, too. But I, I was just really contemplating this idea a little bit because I was thinking about like, okay, so this particular format that we're in right now is not, we're not two comedians talking. We're not going to try to do anything too racy. That's not what this is about, right? Like this is about an exploration of an individual and a celebration of someone's life and finding out how 
they came to where they are. This is what I'm attempting to create with this. So <laughs> any like over the top abstract humor gets put off to the side for the time being. And then here we are, right? But it just made me think about how important it is to value humor within friendships. Could you imagine having a friend that you didn't laugh with? I'm like doing a mental scan. I think if I have any friends that I couldn't have a laugh with. <laughs> uh, it sounds impossible. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of anybody. Anyway, it's uh, it's not a fully uh, thought out idea. I was just thought I'd bring it up. And the other thing I want to make sure I bring up as well, too, is Ange Connolly, your wife, your partner of the last 23 plus years. So you're in a long-term relationship. You and Ange are, are a team. Yeah. You have a, like a very strong bond between the two of you. I myself am in a 20-plus year relationship. What is important to you about living this life that you have right now? with uh, a partner that you've had for so long. Why is that a decision that you made and have uh, stuck to? Hmm, decision. I don't know if it's a decision. I think it's just we've been together for, for so long that we meet each other's needs and we have we have goals with each other. And um, our dog Reggie has been an amazing experience for us to share in that that love. The past couple of years, that's been huge for us to just care for this being and both be interested in his well-being and we're also very different to each other and has never been on social media she's a private person she's super funny and can yak it up with the best of them but she wouldn't ever want to get on a podcast and like talk about herself or you know be extroverted like I, like I am like I'm happy to talk about myself and do podcasts and stuff like that, where she's the complete opposite. Um, so I think it's kind of amazing that we're we're so different, and yet we come together in this this special way and carve out a life for each other that that has been working. Um, like any relationship, it has its challenges, but we have a lot to be grateful for. Like you know, family, friends, it's a cute dog. We live in a really beautiful part of the world. Um, yeah, yeah, and she's pretty great. And she can yag it up with the best of them, that's for sure. And I guess also what you mentioned as well, too, about, uh, you know, as much as you guys have in common, there's also a number of things that uh, you're quite different about uh, with each other. Yeah, opposites attract. Here's another question for you, Luke. What do you see going forward in the future for yourself? And also, broadly speaking, in the world? Because I know that uh, you're somebody who really pays close attention to what's going on in the uh, the world and you're a very thoughtful very very thoughtful person who analyzes what's going on in the greater scheme of things but what's uh, a hope that you have for uh, for things moving forward in the world uh in general and then also for your own life as well too um <laughs> hope is a is a funny word for me i not super crazy about that word um but i know the sort of soft comforting context of it i feel like hope is just something is a word that i have yeah taken a bit of issue with in in recent years um what do i envision for the future of the world i have i have no idea i don't think anybody has a crystal ball on that i mean it's just constantly changing there's a lot of a lot of tensions in so many different areas 
and things are moving extremely fast. In my own life, what do I envision? Um, I want to become a better poker player. I've been really into poker for the past few years. Um, I just love that game so much. And you and I used to play a lot of chess, and chess used to be my favorite game. And I used to like thinking about the philosophies and the moves and so much about that game and apply it to my life. And I kind of think about poker like that now too. Just um, so many different variables in it. And the game is influenced by the players that sit at the table and different styles, different energies of how people are that day. And uh, I play a weekly poker game with a bunch of friends and the, the laughed, laughs and uh, teasing each other and just so much goodness comes out of it. So it's a lot of fun. So yeah, I'd like to just get better at understanding that game. And Ange and I are just really happy with where we're living. So maybe work on our home a little bit more and fix some things up around the house that I'd like to do. Just yeah, regular, regular stuff. Yeah. Okay, right on. Um, I mean, and, you know, being analytical of what's going on in the world, I I have been paying more attention to different changes that have been going on um, in recent years and recognizing that, you know, there is something to be said about focusing on the inside world because what's going on in the external is, it's just, uh, it's a minefield and it's not to say that I want to ignore like pressing issues and, you know, have a voice and, and vocalize things that I take issue with at, at the time and have a conversation about things. And, uh, one thing I have noticed is, you know, back to what we're talking about with humor and jokes and stuff and sensitivities and stuff. It's like, of course it's, um, good to be responsible with, with words and, you know, how you share opinions and ideas about things. But at the same time, I think it's really important for people to talk and have conversations and not be so quick to dismiss um, dismiss each other just for having an opinion about one said topic. And I feel like that's been one thing that I've been really noticing and I'm quite passionate about that is just still having the conversations. And I've had some very awkward, uncomfortable conversations with people, but just through I don't know, patience and just going through the motions and just back and forth and just trying to just get a like better sense of where someone else is coming from. And I don't think we can always understand things. I mean, understanding is important and sometimes it's okay to just not be able to understand a thing, but just like bear witness to it. So yeah, it's a balance between just bearing witness to what's going on and actually like engaging with what's going on and and taking part and trying to have some fun and some play with it. So I'm grateful that I can do that in my art because that is an area that I like to play. And yeah. Yeah, I know uh, for the last little while that you have engaged people in uh, in lots of different kinds of conversations and that's something you're really good at and uh, being open to receiving what people are are saying or feeling that might go in opposition to what you're saying and and engage in conversation and talk about it and uh it's uh it's pretty good and i think that the more opportunity that we all allow for 
people to hear each other out, you know, have equal parts um, speaking and listening and, and truly being open and being able to, um, to really try to appreciate where people are at as best as you can. Or like you say, if, if you can't even go there, just bear witness, right? Yeah. And everyone has a story. And everyone has a, a connection to what, like wherever they've, they've landed in their, in their temporary position in life. And, you know, we don't, we don't always know why or how someone arrived at that. And so sometimes it, it takes a little bit of curiosity and time to get to, to hear those stories. And that's what's wonderful about what you're doing with your podcast is you're taking time to uh, be curious about someone and get to hear their story. And I've enjoyed listening to your podcast for that reason, because it's, you know, even living on Pender Island for nine years and then listening to people, guests that you've had and being like, oh, I had no idea that that person had that story and, and that past, even though I've interacted with them so many times, because you're not always going to be able to get into that stuff with people that you maybe see in passing or in community. But in this kind of format, you, yeah, you get to hear a little bit more. Yeah. Well, right on, man. I appreciate you uh, doing this. Is there anything else that you want to uh, end off with or say to people listening that uh, we didn't touch on on this I would love for you to tell that dirty joke that you told me before we did this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so a guy walks into a bar. Stop. Don't do it. <laughs> ah, anyway, thanks for doing this, man. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Chris. I really appreciate you inviting me to kick back and, and talk. And uh, you're a good friend. Thank you. Thank you. You as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to that. It's really nice that people stick around to the end of the podcast and hear it from front to back. If you're listening to this, thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I mentioned off the top, if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to go back and listen to other episodes. There are some amazing people out there living in the world, and I'm doing my part to highlight them in this little corner of the world we live in. Once again, I'd like to thank Luke for doing that interview with me. I'd like to thank Ben McConkie for providing the theme music to this podcast. And again, thank you for listening. Until next time.